You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 49 through 62. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you now to your word. We come morning and evening. We desire for your word to shape our whole lives, our whole heart, strength, soul, and mind. So God, we pray that you would do that now by your spirit. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night. So if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to head out with Mr. Stephen and Miss Emily and talk about this passage from Luke 9, we'll see you later. Y'all have a good time. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after this service. Uh, Welcome to Christ Church, to this gathering of these people. We are now three weeks back into the gospel of Jesus, the, the, the good news of Jesus according to Luke, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, In the last two weeks, we've seen first the glory or the the deity of Jesus revealed to his disciples. And then last week, we saw Jesus begin to more finely tune, more finely calibrate his disciples' expectation that he wasn't just going to do everything for them. He had delegated them with power and authority to step into suffering, to speak against injustice, to operate with his power and authority. But even though he wasn't going to do everything for them, that he, through them, was still not going to do everything. Until his return, there would still be a road of of suffering ahead of them that pushes back against their, pushes back against our, pushes back against the base human human impulse that demands to be served, that just wants to have things uh, ready and easy for us immediately. This week... He is going to continue to properly set expectations, expectations for his disciples, expectations for us. Just like I mentioned last week in a similar introduction, expectations are everything, aren't they? Like if we all walked out of here into the parking lot in an hour or so after this service was over and I said, all right, everybody, let's get out of here and we're going to run a half marathon. Uh, I think none of us here would do well. 
many of us would not do well because running is the worst, and we do not like to run. Uh, you were just walked out of the church service, and you're like, hey, man, I'm just trying to get some tacos or something. Even for those of you who could just walk out of here and athletically, just on a whim, run 13 miles, you likely, if you had known that we were all going to run 13 miles after this service, you would have eaten differently today. You would have certainly dressed differently for tonight. You were not prepared. But if I said, all right, everybody, six months from now, on March 10th, the first day of daylight savings time, we are all going to walk out of here and we are going to run a half marathon. First of all, why? Because running is the worst, but many of you maybe would be able to, over the next six months, begin training, begin preparing, and on the day, even eating differently. You might dress and prepare differently to do it. Hard things require the right mindset. Well, to wrap up chapter 9 tonight, Jesus is going to continue to calibrate. He is going to tighten. He is going to uh, clarify the disciples' expectation of what it means to follow him, to follow Jesus, to learn from him, to walk in his ways, is to become a disciple of Jesus. In the ancient Greco-Roman and Jewish world, teachers would gather students, their disciples, to follow them along the way. They would follow him for a time and learn his ways, learn his philosophy of life. And tonight, we're going to see Jesus teach his disciple that discipleship, following Jesus, is not just ongoingly sitting at his feet, learning intellectual or theological truths, but learning to follow him into hard things. And hard things require the right mindset. So tonight, we're going to ask three questions of our text. Whom does discipleship include? What does discipleship provoke? And then third, what does discipleship cost? Ready? Here we go. Whom does discipleship include? This section, verses, this first two verses, verses 49 and 50, likely belonged in a better place in a sermon at the end of last week's sermon. Since there is like a very hard transition in the narrative in verse 51 about Jesus kind of like doing this and setting his face toward Jerusalem. There's a hard shift that happens in verse 51. But we ran out of time last week. And now I'm actually really thankful for the bookended nature that this first section is going to provide for the rest of our text. A quick spoiler alert, here's where we're going to end this sermon. In case you weren't really listening, uh, when, when this was just read in verses 57 through 62, Josh was telling us there at the very end that Jesus is going to give us some very hard teachings and warnings about it, what, what it will mean to follow him. The very end of this, when Jesus tells these three would-be disciples, he's essentially giving the equivalent of the half marathon everyone is coming, and the only way that it will go well for you is to begin training tonight. Not next month, do not begin training next week, not tomorrow, but tonight. There is an urgency of the importance of the heaviness, of the hardness that is coming. So all of that is coming, and these will be hard and necessary kicks in the pants for all of us. But verses 49 and 50 are also here that will then demand that we don't walk out of, out of here like full of ourselves, proud of ourselves. Here's what happens. 
Jesus has just rebuked the disciples for arguing over who of them will be the greatest or who is the greatest. And he told them, as we thought through last week, he tells them that the the elevator to glory goes down. There is strength and weakness until you learn to care for and serve those who will bring you actually zero social benefit, serving those who cannot help you climb the social ladder like children, not grasping after power, but growing in humility until you have understood what I have come to do and what I have come to make you into, you cannot understand the rest of it. To which, in verse 49, John, the disciple, seemingly says, okay, that's very interesting, Jesus, but master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Now, if you want to give John the benefit of the doubt, assuming the very best of him, we could say that his impulse is really good. He is looking out there and saying, hey, there are people out there who are supposedly acting in your name, supposedly doing good things in your name, but we know that they are not acting on your behalf, and why do we know that? Why do we know that they are just but actors? They are charlatans out there because they are not your disciples. They do not follow you. They do not take seriously the things that we take seriously. They're just using your name to promote themselves, even if they have good intentions, because they're not first considering what it means to follow you. But verse 50, Jesus said to him, do not stop him, that person who is casting out demons, for the one who is not against you is for you. It's almost like Jesus is saying, I appreciate the zeal, John, but let's point that zeal in the right direction. Now, we know based on the rest of the New Testament and even many of Jesus' other teachings of what he is not saying here. He is not saying, all right, disciples, John, I appreciate the zeal, but don't worry about doctrine. Don't worry about false teaching. Don't worry worry about, well, really anything. You just worry about following me. Just let the chips fall where they may for everyone else. Don't worry about what goes on out there. In chapter 12, Jesus will say, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. There is false teaching that can get into the church and slowly poison and corrupt even those who are operating in Jesus' name. John, years after he heard these words from Jesus in Luke 9, he wrote in 1 John 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we know that Jesus is not saying, you do you, you let them do them, because who's to say what's really right or wrong? As long as someone is doing something in my name, that is inherently good. That is inherently right. Just let them do what they're doing as long as they're doing it for me. But if that's not what he's saying, what is he saying? It seems like the person out there really is, as best we're able to tell from the text, really is casting out demons in Jesus' name. Maybe even plural people. Right now it's just one, but maybe there are others that they don't know about who are casting out demons in Jesus' name. Maybe they just had heard Jesus' teaching at some point. Whether they saw Jesus' miracles or not, maybe they even were the recipients of Jesus' miracles. Who knows? Maybe the man out there who was casting out demons was the very man who himself had demons who were legion cast out of him and sent out into the pigs. Maybe the person out there was the woman who had been bleeding, or maybe Jairus, whose daughter had been raised from the dead. Maybe those people had genuinely seen and genuinely had their lives changed by the power of Jesus, but they were not presently with him. But they came to him as often as they were able to hear him teach. They genuinely did want to act and live in the power of Jesus' name. 
Jesus says, it is not your job to decipher and discern who the real disciples are. Now again, let's let scripture interpret scripture here based on Jesus and Paul's teaching on church membership, on church discipline. This is not to say that we, have, we never have grounds to uh, confront or rebuke those who are clearly in sin. But it is not your job, John, to be the final arbiter over who the real disciples are out there. That is, don't put up any unnecessary walls that would prevent people from coming and following me. Some walls are necessary, but not unnecessary walls that communicate, you don't do what I do, you do not know Jesus like I know, and I'm sure you mean well, but you are not as serious as me, so you need to stop pretending. Remember Romans 12 that Rabo preached for us a few weeks ago where Paul says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And in Romans 14, where some people do have weaker and stronger faith, but we can be, Paul is telling the Romans there, to be thankful that all of us are the body of Christ, even as we encourage those of weaker faith to press on, to deepen in their knowledge and closeness to Jesus. How often are we guilty of this perhaps even in pride of our own churches, of our own theological traditions, of being so glad that we're part of a church where we do or so we think, we think rightly, and thank you, God, that we are not like all of the other churches out there who don't take things so seriously. You guys tell me of when you go home for Christmas or summer vacation or something, you visit your parents' church or something, or for one reason or another, you visit another church in town, and rather than thankfulness for the good gospel ministry that is going on in that church of preaching and of conversion and of sanctification and for love of the body amongst the saints, you turn into a critic of what you would do differently, of what they don't do like we do or something like that. This happens to me all the time. Whenever I am at any kind of a church gathering, I turn into critic of like what I would do differently. And I just hear the rebuking words of one of my seminary professors in my head and in my ears talking, he was talking about different kinds of musical worship, but he just said, and it's something that I've never forgotten, that a mature Christian is easily edified. That a mature Christian is just easily edified by what is going on in and amongst God's people, even if they're doing things differently. It's just one verse after Jesus tells his disciples to include and welcome the weakest of these children. It's just one verse later that the disciples are ready to exclude those who are seemingly really trusting and believing in the name and the power of Jesus. It's been asked before, do you rejoice if after praying for revival, revival comes to the church down the street? Like, are you happy for that? Or does it have to happen in our own church because God needs us because we get it right? Rivalry is not a trait of discipleship. And I'm so happy to be in a city where there are 15 or 20 or so churches that I have deep friendships with, that we regularly pray for on our, in our Sunday services, that we have friendship amongst these other good gospel ministries, praying for each other's success, praying for each other's faithfulness and unity amongst their body. And so whom does discipleship include? I think simply all those who want to know and follow Jesus. There's a welcome invitation to all those who want to follow, know and follow Jesus. 
And so we need to be careful to not bring up, to build unnecessary walls that would exclude those who really and authentically want to follow him. And yet, now secondly, what does it provoke? What does authentic discipleship to Jesus provoke? That is, for those who are following and learning from Jesus, what does that do from those and to those who are not following Jesus? All right, what does discipleship provoke? Back in 51 here, again, 51 is a major turning point in the scope of the entire book, the the Gospel of Luke. This marks a major shift, mostly out out of the miraculous healing that we have seen Jesus doing over the last many chapters, now to a transition primarily towards Jesus's teaching ministry, out of his healing ministry and into his teaching ministry. Again, the voice from the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration that we uh, considered two weeks ago of listen to him. And now for mostly the rest of the book, it is his disciples and we, the readers of the Gospel of Luke, listening to Jesus. So we're about to get to some of Jesus's most famous parables in the coming weeks. But this section also marks the end of Jesus's Galilean ministry in the north. He is now moving south. He has set his face toward Jerusalem, which of course will be the place of his crucifixion, of his death. Luke calls the time when the days drew near to be taken up, which we've seen Jesus talk about with Moses and Elijah on the mountain as his exodus, taken up as in taken up on the cross, as well as taken up into the heavens, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. The days are coming near. And so while his entire life has always been about this, now he has turned towards a straight line to the finish line, the home stretch. He has resolved toward his mission of the salvation of his people. And so now moving south, he sends his apostles, his messengers ahead of him into Samaria. We're going to think more about the Samaritans when we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan in chapter 10, but the Samaritans in Samaria is the region just south of Galilee where we have basically seen the whole first nine chapters of this book happen, and Samaria is south of Galilee and north of Judea, the region in the south where Jerusalem is. And this middle area, this region of Samaria is a no-go zone for the Jews. Samaritans and Jews hate each other for ethnic and religious reasons. And the people there in Samaria, or at least in this first village, they do not receive Jesus' apostles. These John the Baptist-like figures who go ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. And the Samaritans there reject them. And by doing so, they reject Jesus. And so when James and John see and experience this rejection from the Samaritans in this Samaritan village, they come to Jesus and they ask him, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, before we give James and John a, like a, come on now, look, like you can't be serious. This seems like a crazy overreaction. They've actually got some biblical and historical warrants for this kind of question. Way back in 2 Kings 1, King Ahaziah who is ruling from Samaria, makes requests of a false god of a foreign people. And the prophet Elijah comes to the king and he tells him that because he has abandoned the god of Israel, he is going to die, the king will. So with Elijah, who then goes outside of town and he sits up on a hill, the king sends 50 men to capture Elijah and to bring him in because he's made this seemingly threat against the king. And Elijah, up on the hill with 50 men down below, Uh, Elijah says, I'm warning you, I speak for God, go home. 
which they don't. So he calls fire down from heaven, and the 50 men from Samaria are consumed. Again, the king sends another 50 men to capture Elijah, to bring him in. And Elijah says, I'm warning you, I speak for God, go home, which they don't. So he calls down fire from heaven and again consumes 50 men from Samaria. And again, the king sends another 50 men to capture Elijah and brings him in. But on the third time, the captain of the men, uh, yelling up to Elijah, sitting up on the hill, he tells Elijah that he knows that Elijah is a man of God, that he speaks for God, and he asks Elijah, he says, please do not consume us. He knows what's happened before in the two days prior. Elijah then comes down and tells the men that the king will die for abandoning the true God of Israel, which then very shortly after, happens according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. So knowing their national history forward and backward, it seems like James and John have just seen the rejection of the man of God, seen the rejection from this region of Samaria, and they're like, we know this one. We know this one. Jesus, would you like us to Elijah these clowns for you? and consume them with fire from heaven. But verse 55, he turned and rebuked them. He says, no, no, you're wrong here. That just because something was done at a time in the Old Testament history of God's people does not mean that that is the way that it will be done now. Now again, go back and listen to like, All of our summer series in Joshua for some of this context, I did not just say that Elijah was wrong to do what he did or that God was wrong to do what he did, that the God of the Old Testament is angry and judgmental and Jesus is just welcoming and nice. That is not what is going on. But this is now a time of, remember back in Luke 1, Luke 2, Luke 3, like all of the Christmas passages, that Luke 1 and Luke 2 and Luke 3 are signaling a time of repentance, a time for the forgiveness of sins, a time for peace, that in Luke 4, when Jesus begins his teaching ministry in the synagogue, the very first time that Jesus publicly teaches, he directly quotes from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Do you remember this? Way back in chapter 4, many months ago, where Jesus, he stands up in the synagogue and he's quoting directly from Isaiah 61, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then he deliberately and he conscientiously stops in the middle of verse two of Isaiah 61. Verse two of Isaiah 61 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. He stops. He leaves out the vengeance of our God. Now we're going to see next week that there is absolutely a day of coming judgment and vengeance. Jesus is not afraid to warn of coming vengeance and judgment, that there is eternal judgment and vengeance against the enemies of God. This day, which will come, will be a day far worse than those than than the day that those who were on the hill in front of Elijah experienced. Far worse than what James and John wanted to come down on this day. But for now, verse 60 of Luke 9 is a good summary of what Jesus wants from his disciples for the age of the church. It's a good summary. But as for you, go, proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't call down fire on 
the enemies of God, but just proclaim his kingdom. As we thought about two weeks ago, one day we will again live in the age of the eye when we will see King Jesus and become like him. But this day, in this age, the age of the church, this is an age of the ear, of hearing, that all must hear the proclaimed kingdom of Christ and hear of his saving death and resurrection. The day of the eye will come again. And friend, a day of judgment awaits. Just because you do not see this judgment or experience this judgment today, it means nothing. Do not let that lull you into a sense of false security, of false peace. None of us will escape the vengeance of the Lord. Jesus will return to make all things new, all things right. He has created you to rule on his behalf, just like Kyle opened this service with. He has created us to extend and advance his kind and compassionate rule and to exhibit and to exude his character to the world. And you, like me, and like the person sitting next to you, and like every other human who has ever lived, you have rejected that role of sub-ruling on God's behalf. You have lived for yourself. You have lived for your kingdom. You do not like God's rule over your life. You do not like his rules or expectations. You would rather God not exist at all. And the way you live proves it. It does. I know this because you're human, and it is in our nature that we have inherited from the first humans the, the rejection of God, of living our lives however we want to live them. But the Lord Jesus has come to offer peace, to offer not judgment against all of that rejection of God, but to offer forgiveness, to offer grace, to offer belonging, to free you from a past of self-worship and to free you to a present and to a future of God-worship, no longer elevating your every whim or desire for yourself, but elevating God's eternal desire for you. But these things, not self-actualization at all costs, but self-denial, not engaging in the cultural and societal worship of mankind, but in the worship of the God of mankind, speaking these kinds of truths and living these kinds of lives, the lives that follow in the way of Jesus, these things will provoke not reactions of welcomed and opened arms of the world, but societal rejections. Jesus is prepared for this. He has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Rejection begins this second section in Luke, beginning in verse 51. As he begins his journey, the Samaritans here reject Jesus, and rejection will await him at the end of his journey after arriving in Jerusalem in chapter 19. In chapter 19, Jesus weeps over the city, saying, Would that you have known the things that make for peace. I have come to offer peace, and you have rejected, them, rejected it all. Would that you have welcomed and received me as your king, but you didn't. The world rejects Jesus, and over and over again, he warns his disciples that the same will come for them. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so if we are never feeling some sort of cultural rejection, are we actually walking in the way of Jesus? Or are we perhaps 
afraid of rejection and in wanting to have our spiritual cake of belonging to Jesus and following him, but then having our worldly eating of it too, are we just about the self? Are we afraid? Again, like last week, are we just expecting Jesus to do all of the hard work of stepping into suffering, of stepping into and speaking against injustice in this world? Are we just expecting him to do it all so that we don't have to experience the rejection? Because we know Jesus is rejected, but if I can be accepted by the world and accepted by Jesus, well, great. But no, rejection comes for all of Jesus' people. But on the other hand, do we perhaps delight in just being quarrelsome? Not having, not having to think about or cultivate gentleness and compassion and then just chalking it up to, well, We know that the world rejects Jesus and his people. We must know our own hearts. There are ditches on both sides, ditches of self-preservation and ditches of self-promotion. And we must follow Jesus both in his boldness and in his character. A great call demands a great response, which is what this third section and this third question then become all about. The first thing we thought about is that if There are those out there who are wanting to follow Jesus. Do not build unnecessary walls to prevent them. And so whom does discipleship include? Anyone who wants to know and follow Jesus. And then secondly, what does discipleship provoke? Rejection from the world. But then, what does discipleship cost for those who are actually following him? Discipleship costs, in a word, everything. Thirdly, One village of Samaritans have rejected Jesus, and so they move on. They move on to another. And in the next few verses, Luke may have compiled from several days of travel along the road with Jesus to give us then a paragraph of like snappy one-liners that Jesus gives to three different kinds of would-be disciples. It's very quick. It's very snappy. There's Jesus says one-liner, gives a one-liner, and then Luke doesn't give any commentary. He just moves on. And verse 57 is actually a great summary of the Christian life. Verse 57, Luke says, as they were going along the road, as they were walking along the road with Jesus, this is all of us just walking with him and learning from him as we go. And as the disciples here in this day were doing the same, someone, maybe one of the 12, likely someone else, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go which is a good and earnest response, is it not? Like, this is the kind of thing that we would want Jesus' disciples to say to him, to which Jesus presumably kind of looks back to this guy, whoever just said it, and he's like, you sure, man? Like, are you really sure? He said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You sure? Now, what's he saying? He's saying what it means to follow me is not just sitting and learning, but what it means to follow me is walking, is acting, is living. Jesus is not promoting homelessness here as the ideal of Christian discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, but that the Christian life is not a life ultimately pursued for comfort. And again, ultimately not a life of self-preservation, not a life of self-promotion. I've shared this from Charles Spurgeon maybe half a dozen times before, but that great London Baptist preacher once said that the Christian is the most contented man in the world, but he is the least contented with the world. You hear that? 
The Christian is the most contented man in the world, but he is the least contented with the world. He is like a traveler in an inn, perfectly satisfied with the inn and its accommodation, considering it as an inn, but putting quite out of all consideration the idea of making it his home. Hotels can be nice for a couple of days, but then once you decide, hey, I think I'm going to live here, it becomes a pretty terrible home. So Jesus, calibrating expectations and giving a proper warning to consider what following him will actually mean, he says this, that following me may not be comfortable. Following me may often or always feel unsettled, not comfortable. It might even feel like death because following me is the death of self. Yet for those who lose their life for my sake will find it. A question for those of us who follow Jesus. This last week, where has the love of Christ motivated good works in you? And where has the love of Christ constrained sin from you? This week, have you done something that you ordinarily wouldn't have done for the sake of Christ? How does the love of Christ motivate? Have you met with him in his word or in prayer? Have you met with his people to share with what he has done or is doing in your life? Have you done a few extra dishes, an extra load of laundry, an extra sweep up or a mopping just to serve your roommates, to serve your wife, to serve your husband, to serve others without fanfare or promotion? Have you worked excellently at your schoolwork, excellently on a work project, when satisfactory is all that is expected? Working with excellence, not for applause or for promotion, but as unto the Lord. Have you joyfully submitted to your work authorities? Or kids, have you joyfully submitted to your parents' authority in obedience? When you absolutely otherwise would not or would obey, but begrudgingly. And on the other hand, where has the love of Christ constrained? Constrained sinful action. Have you not done something or kept yourself from something that you ordinarily would have done, but for the sake of Christ, rather than using others for your own pleasure? Where have you kept your body or your imagination for the purity of knowing God and seeing him, rather than avoiding your family or your roommates, with the internet and with endless, infinite scrolls, where have you kept your time available for the good and for the encouragement of others? Rather than stewing in, in, in anxiety, in fear, or even anger about this thing or about this person or that situation, where have you kept your mind in trusting joy in, or trusting in the Lord that he might bring joy, that you might take every thought captive? Where has the love of Christ for you motivated or constrained works, living, action. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. None of these things will finally make you useful, will finally make you acceptable for, before God. It is absolutely not, I'm going to really try hard, I'm going to obey, and then I will be forgiven or accepted, but because I am forgiven and accepted, now I obey. I am his. He has bought me with a price and I am no longer my own but belong to him. I will follow him because I believe that he is leading me to life even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when it doesn't make sense. 
Similarly, in verse 59, Jesus says to another person on the road, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Which, if his father had just died, this is a completely reasonable thing for this man to say, right? Caring for the dead is a last and final way to keep the fifth commandment of honoring your father and mother. But Jesus is saying, hey, we're going now. We're going now. Follow me. Even good excuses, good social familial excuses should not postpone discipleship. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The importance of this moment, Jesus is saying, I am with you now and we are leaving. We are moving along the road. You must come now. There is an urgency now. Drop what you are doing and follow me. Following Jesus and proclaiming his kingdom trumps familial loyalty, trumps social loyalty, trumps job loyalty, whatever loyalties are out there, whatever loyalties are even good loyalties, all are subservient to loyalty to Christ. When he calls, we follow. Friend, the moment is urgent. What excuses are preventing you from dropping everything and following him? A great call demands a great response. A great savior demands a great response. And then similarly and lastly, a third person says in verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We have another Elijah moment here, where in 1 Kings 19, Elijah is plowing his field, or Elisha is plowing his field, and Elijah comes and just walks up beside him, and he puts his cloak on Elisha. He is setting apart, and he is signifying to Elisha and to everyone else that Elisha is to become his protege, is to become his disciple. And in that moment, and in that time, way back in 1 Kings 19, Elisha said to Elijah, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said, yep, sounds good. No problem. He sent him back to his family to say goodbye, to get his things in order. But in this moment, and again, the importance of this moment, something greater than Elijah is here. There is an urgency greater than just beginning to learn from the great prophet, to learn from the great man of God. The Christ has come. The Messiah is here. The king has arrived. You must come. You must follow. You must join in with his disciples and learn from him. And so in summing up this entire section, Jesus gives the image of the guy plowing his field while constantly being distracted by what's behind. Like you all know, if you have ever tried to drive on the road while looking back over you, it's easy to swerve into the next lane. The same thing can be true. You cannot walk in a straight line plowing a very straight line of field to drop seeds in, you cannot plow a straight line if you are constantly looking back. You'll begin to veer to the right or to the left. And so Jesus is saying that those who look back want to go back. If you are constantly thinking about, remembering, imagining what is behind, you will want to go there. But there is something new and urgent in following Jesus. Let goods and kindred go, Martin Luther wrote, and that we often sing. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Everything that we own, all the family that we have, this very life that we have been given, it all belongs to Jesus. 
following Jesus is a life that denies the self and says that even if I do not understand right now, I trust you. I will follow you. Jesus does not want an emotional one-time decision that in, in not counting the costs, in not preparing for difficulty, like running a half marathon in whatever you're wearing tonight, and not training and not considering what is ahead of you. Jesus is saying that the road ahead is difficult and it is a road that is filled with opposition and it is a road that is filled with rejection. It is a narrow road and many will depart from it. The gate to enter into the kingdom of God is equally narrow, but the gate is only as wide as Jesus. Those who enter, those saved by his death, redeemed by his life, renewed by his resurrection, those who have nothing to boast in but the loving kindness and grace of God poured out for us on the cross, those who by the Spirit and often through suffering, those that the Father is conforming more and more into the image, the character, the nature of Jesus, those who walk into their true home by this Jesus-shaped gate. Come, follow, not in an emotional one-time decision, but in resolved commitment to follow Christ as a way of life, walking in grace, walking in repentance and faith, walking in increasing obedience and joy, not with the self as like your full-time job, and then following Christ over here as the side hustle. Anybody got any side gigs, any side hustles that you've got? You can only fit those things in in your spare time. But following Christ, the cost of your discipleship is your whole life. It is the full-time job. The most counterintuitive thing of all this, the upside-downness of the whole enterprise is that in making Christ the full-time job, the biggest commitment in all of life is that his burden is easy and that his yoke is light. That those who lose their life, counterintuitively, will find it. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and who are heavy laden. Weary and who are heavy laden by trying to live in the never-ending, never-satisfied quest to promote self and to preserve self. Jesus says, follow me. And in what will feel like the beginning and setting out into like an ultra-marathon, I will give you rest. And I will give you the grace to obey and to know me. Again, not in pride. Not looking out there at those, all those who are not running as seriously as you are or as seriously as we are, but being patient with those who have stronger or lesser levels of faith than me, but then pressing on together, walking together behind our shepherd together, encouraging one another to stay the course, to follow him and to walk through that Jesus-shaped gate. What does it cost you? Everything. But what will you gain? Everything. Those who lose their life will find it. Last week, we sang this incredible hymn, and I just want to, again, read what we so often sing, because it's just such a great summary of this entire section. We should have sung it again this week, but whatever. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter, harm and hatred for his name, but mine is armor for the battle. 
strong enough to last the war, and he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys of Zion's city, where beside the king I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray. We pray for faith. We pray for increasing faith to believe that following Christ is our life, to believe that saying yes to things that we otherwise would not say yes to, that saying no to things of our flesh that we otherwise would indulge, that while those things seem to offer life, they are only death. God, give us eyes to see. Give us faith to see that you, Lord Jesus, are the way of our life. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, help us as we follow you, pilgrims along this narrow way, that we would be a people of the aroma of life, exuding the compassion, the kindness, the joy of the Lord Jesus, that our lives, that our lives together, that our church's witness might be a witness of the Lord Jesus, welcoming, inviting those to come alongside with us, And yet we do realize, Lord, that as we speak, as we live, as we act in the name of the Lord Jesus, that we will experience rejection. We pray that we would experience rejection for the right reasons, for boldness, for courage, for conviction, but not for quarrelsomeness, not for domination. Lord, give us the boldness and the character of Jesus, we pray. We pray that you would bind us together more in love, in unity, and in good works for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.